Coming up on Tech Nation, developing medicines which enable the body to heal itself. First up, treating depression in a whole new way and rapidly. Dr. Jeff Jonas, the Chief Innovation Officer of Sage Therapeutics, joins us to tell us about their drug, Zoranolone, nearing the end of its drug approval journey. Then Craig Parker, the CEO of Suricin, tells us about the WNT pathway, or WINT pathway, and their initial candidate for treatment, the liver. They're just now moving into humans in their first clinical study. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, I was able to speak with Dan Rome, the founder of the Napkin Academy and the author of Blah, 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 What to Do When Words Don't Work. He's long been known for drawing pictures of complex events. I was sure that when he reads the news every day, he gets pictures in his brain. Oh, that happens all the time. For me, it happens all the time. In fact, I have a mantra that I say, whenever... I could draw a picture of something. I should draw a picture of something. And one of the issues that I find when people say, Dan, you know, I like this idea of visual thinking, but it's not for me because I'm not visual. It's just an issue of practice. And part of that goes back to what you call the fox and the hummingbird. Yeah, my fox and my hummingbird. Everybody has one. Or one of each. And what we all have both. <laughs> we all have a fox and a hummingbird. And what they really are is a new take on the old notion of right brain and, and, and left brain thinking, which we know over the last 25 years, since the very first people were coming up with this notion of saying, well, as humans, isn't it interesting that our neocortex, the top part of our brain, most of our brain is split in half. Isn't that funny? Why might that be? And forever and ever, we didn't know. And, and way back in, you know, in the dark ages, scientifically, people would say that, well, one lobe of the brain is probably just redundant. We probably don't need it at all. And then, of course, over the last 20 years, it became clear that both halves of the neocortex seem to do things slightly differently. And we all got very excited in sort of the notion of pop psychology because it is such a magnificent visual analogy, which I love, this notion that our neocortex split into two halves. Each half is specialized on doing one thing. And one half is about being analytical and the other half is about being creative. And it turns out it's just nowhere near that simple. <laughs> so it, one of the things we do know Welcome is that, to science. Welcome to science. It's nowhere near that simple. And you know what? So many of us would hold on to this really lovely notion of saying I'm right-brained or I'm left-brained. It's so unfortunate that we have to let that notion go. But we do know this, that the two halves of our neocortex have evolved over the millions of years to have slightly different function. One half of our brain has evolved to become really good at looking at the world in terms of little bits, kind of looking at the world as if it were pixels. But think what would happen, and this is why we needed the other half of the brain, the part that then focuses on the broader picture, on the periphery. Because if we're so busy focused out on the horizon, you know, if we believe this model, then we're not paying any attention to the thing that's crawling up behind us that's going to jump and eat us. So one half of our brain has evolved to be able to look at the little bits and focus. The other half has evolved to be the glue and pull it all together. So back to the fox and the hummingbird. I wanted to come up with a model that did show that we have two different brains, and it's not so simple as one being verbal and one being visual. And I said, imagine if half our brain was like a fox, very clever, 
very linear, kind of smug, kind of self-satisfied, but able to look at the world and say, I know what to do. And that, to me, really is more our verbal mind, our fox mind. And then I thought, well, how do we account for the fact that sometimes we see the world as a map? We see everything at the same time. Well, that's more like the hummingbird mind. So fast, so flighty, can't focus, can't settle down, but equally valid a view of the world. And the problem, Moira, is that from an educational perspective, we have learned to believe that our fox mind, our more linear mind, is what it means to be intelligent. And so what we do in school is we teach ourselves and our students how to be verbal, how to describe things in a linear A, B, C, D fashion, which half the time is wonderful. But unfortunately, that's all the training that we do. Nobody has ever given us a tool to say, well, what about the part of our mind that's seeing the whole at once, the peripheral view, the hummingbird moving so fast that it sees everything, you know, it sees the trees, it sees the flowers all at the same time, is not able to process it in an A, B, C, D way, but in a whole way. We have no tools for that. So that's where really I set out to try to say, we know how to be a good fox. Let's learn how to be a better hummingbird. This 2013 Tech Nation interview featured Dan Rome and his book, Blah, 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 What to Do When Words Don't Work. His most recent book is Draw to Win, a crash course on how to lead, sell, and innovate with your visual mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, it's all about medicines which utilize the body's own mechanisms for healing. Dr. Jeff Jonas, the Chief Innovation Officer of Sage Therapeutics, tells us that treatment of depression should not mean having to take a prescription medicine every day for the rest of your life. Then Craig Parker, the CEO of Suricin, tells us about their work with the WNT Pathway. Suricin is looking to treat a number of conditions, starting with severe alcoholic hepatitis. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Jeff Jonas. Jeff, welcome back to Tech Nation. Well, thanks for having me today. You know, we're always talking about depression, but I'm never depressed when I'm talking to you. Is that a key insight? Can you talk to absolutely everybody and nobody will be depressed? <laughs> well, you know, firstly, I'm glad you think that. You may be the only person I know who says that about me. Um, I, I've, my goal has always been to be the Larry David of biotech. <laughs> well, I'll nominate you the next time they say there's a, there's a contest. Uh, now, I have no scientific data. But I don't think you have to be a scientist to figure out that the incidence of depression has to be increased during this COVID-19 pandemic. There has to be more depression out there. You know, I don't think there's any question. We're all recognizing it. But it's really a little more nuanced than that. You know, and firstly, it gets to the nature of what depression is and mental illness in general. Firstly, you have to remember all of us res often respond to stress, we're sad, or we're, we could be unhappy. 
But in times of great stress, such as what we're all going through now, you have a disease where you have a big environmental component along with the genetic predisposition. So now we have two factors that are probably combining to increase the incidence of depression. One is you know, the stress that all of us are under, but the other is what we would call ascertainment bias. We're paying more attention to ourselves. We have more time to reflect. And people are basically are getting diagnosed because they're more attentive to these sorts of symptoms at a time when we're not distracted with work or with travel. So I think it's, it's as we know about all mental health, it's a combination of the biology plus the precipitating factors, plus our ability to detect the depression. And then, of course, people are talking about it more. It's come to the public attention. And if you think about, you know, in the first world where we have the greatest impact, you know, in terms of productivity, potentially behind cardiovascular disease, you're talking about mental health. It's getting more focus and people are paying more attention to it, which really is a good thing. Now, the research or the science of of depression has been continuous for many, many years, decades, perhaps even centuries. Are we thinking of it any differently now than we did in past times? Well, yeah, this is a great time to be involved in central nervous system research because it is just beginning to experience a resurgence of interest, both in big pharma and among basic researchers. But let's step back for a minute and, and review what's happened. 30 years ago or thereabouts, we were using MAO inhibitors, which were difficult to use, or tricyclic antidepressants. And then we, we experienced the beginning of the this SSRI revolution, Prozac, Lexapro, and drugs of that nature. They were breakthroughs at the time. They were possibly more effective, but certainly easier to use. But they, those drugs and all the drugs before them really relied on a particular hypothesis of brain function, which was neurotransmitter imbalance, specifically serotonin. So we're talking about the medical thinking. I'll talk a little bit about therapy in a minute. But over the last 35 years, we've had mostly different flavors of the same ice cream. And so there haven't been really new ways of thinking about it, I would say, until recently. And we're seeing this now across the board. You know, and I know, I know we'll talk about it. One way of thinking about depression are abnormalities of brain activity or brain circuitry, which is sort of a level above what we would call the neurotransmitters. Serotonin is a drug that is is a neurotransmitter that allows nerves to communicate with each other. But above that, when nerves communicate, they have electrical activity. And that activity may be abnormal in depression. So one way that people are thinking about treating depression now differently is to use drugs that change the electrical activity of the brain. Now, that seems like a new idea, but in fact, one of the earliest treatments for depression was electroconvulsive therapy, which is a, you know, an extreme form. Wow, I remember this, yes. Right? Yeah. It's an extreme form of altering brain electrical activity. And in fact, the use of ECT was really a fortuitous observation that patients with seizures who were depressed would wake up after a seizure and feel better. So that's an ele- that is a circuit approach to treating what we call mood disorders, and it's, it's still quite effective, although di- you know not uh, optimal for many reasons. And then we're seeing the other revolution or the other new way of thinking, which are the use of or the reemergence of psychedelics, what what we used to call intoxicants. And if you're a student of history, you can go back into the 1890s 
in the 1900s. And one of the common treatments for mood disorders and neuroses, I'm doing air quotes, which no one can see, but neuroses was laudanum, which is an opiate. So the use of intoxicants and things that altered mind states have also been tried and now seeing a resurgence. So we're seeing people and companies and investigators starting to think differently about brain disease. And I think what we're also seeing, not as aggressive as I'd like to see, is the understanding that these are diseases that must be treated urgently, quickly, and effectively. It seems to me that it's really difficult to study depression scientifically. You can't like take a blood test and say, okay, great, you've got it. And now we're going to give you some treatment and we can tell, oh, it's changed. The biological marker has changed. Clearly you're saying, we have to kind of ask people how they feel. I hate, it's just so hard when you have to ask somebody something. It's very easy to read a blood pressure. But this is the unique challenge and opportunity around doing research in mental health. One of the, one of the challenges, as you really point out, you know, we talk about signs and symptoms in medicine. And what we have in, in mental health are symptoms, right? And so we have to use symptoms that the patient tells us about. So, of course, one of the great things about being a psychiatrist is you actually have to listen to a patient, you know, and you get to interact. And it's, you know, it's not a, part, a lot of medicine isn't that way anymore. But then the shortcoming is we don't have any blood tests. There really aren't any reliable markers. Now, there's a vast science literature. I would say a graveyard of literature of biological tests that have really not passed muster and gotten into common use in diagnosing depression or schizophrenia. And that makes, that makes it very hard to find the right patients. We used to have a saying when we were studying biomarkers that if the Lord came down and gave us a blood test for schizophrenia, it wouldn't work because we wouldn't, give it, we wouldn't know what patients to test it on. And that's always been the challenge in psychiatry. That's why we have the DSMs, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals, that's why they evolved. And that's been a, an attempt to regularize and make systematic diagnoses. But it's all based on symptoms. So if you have this many symptoms in this list, you likely have this. Exactly. And the problem for that is that symptoms are not always specific. So it, I always use the example of a cough. I can have a cough because there's smoke in the room, or I may have pneumonia. So symptoms can be reliable, but, what, but they may lack what we call validity. So that's always been a challenge. Like, how do you define a disease? It's a little esoteric, but it's an important concept because a lot. So, for example, if I create a disease called Jonas's disease, which is no hair and blue eyes, I can diagnose that reliably 100% of the time. But is that a real disease? And the answer is no, because it doesn't have a treatment course. It may not respond to medications in a certain way. And there's no biomarker for it. And other people may look just like me. So that's always been the challenge of mental health research. So that's the first challenge. The second is that a lot of our symptoms are complex behaviors that may not be replicated by standard method research practice, such as animal models. So for example, in antibiotic research, if you can kill a bug in a plate, you sort of have an idea you can kill the bacteria in a human. You know, dogs don't forget to write their mothers. They don't get sad. You know, it's very hard to extrapolate from animals. You have to anthropomorphize. And that's always made testing and research and depression in particular in schizophrenia very difficult. And if you look at the history of trials in depression, 
about 50% of them fail, even if the drugs we know are active. So it's always been a very challenging area for research. And part of it is that it's hard to make the diagnoses. Part of it is we are not testing new medicines. And part of it, the basic science has been very challenging. We don't have animal models, so we have to get more clever. So one of the things I've been interested in when we were doing, you know, in our company was translating these early signs into humans as quickly as possible. And the theory is, what's the most relevant animal model? Humans. And so that's always been our thesis, which is, you know, you know, I've been very, very vocal about this. I don't want to run dog studies or rat studies. I want to assure patient safety and then test a drug in humans. And there you get your signal of whether you have activity or not. And, and I think that's where the field is going. The other challenge is that in a lot of medicine, you can have a single lesion or, or some sort of single lesion that's very proximate or close to the pathology you're measuring. So for, that's causing you to be ill. So think about cancer. You find a gene that, that causes cells to replicate, you knock it out. Okay, your next step is to see if you can stop the cancer from replicating. And you're pretty close from cause and effect. It's very different in psychiatry. And, and I often use the example of imagine you're eating breakfast and, and a fuse goes out. It, you know, the, a, a medical guy, a, an internal medicine researcher reaches over, clicks the fuse, and the lights go on. Problem solved. But in psychiatry, what happens is the fuse goes off. It's in the basement. You get up, you trip on the chair, you break your leg, and you spill your cereal. None of those can be repaired by fixing the fuse. All of these things are upstream. They're combinations of genetics and environment. And that's what makes this both so much so challenging, but so different than the rest of internal medicine and the way those kinds of research studies are conducted. I never thought of the damage done as depression goes on. And it's real. Absolutely real. Now, I want to ask you about something that I've started hearing about in the depression conversation, and that's GABA, G-A-B-A. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> well, I know you know I do. And so GABA, GABA I won't give you the long name. GABA is a, is a very important neurotransmitter. And then I mentioned this earlier. Neurotransmitters are how nerves talk to each other. GABA has a unique role in the brain because it's almost a regulatory transmitter. And what it does is it calms down brain function. It actually slows down brain function. Now, most people think of GABA, they think of drugs like Xanax or, you know, or, or drugs of that nature that are what we use to call benzodiazepines. But there are very different types of GABA receptors in the brain. There are receptors that go up and down very quickly, and those are called synaptic receptors. But then there are regulatory receptors in the brain. And they're called extrasynaptic or outside the nerve synapse. Those are receptors that sort of monitor the climate of the brain, right? So synaptic is weather, minute to minute, hour to hour. Extrasynaptic is the climate, right? And what is the brain like over days to months? And our focus, and as you know, we did this, we started doing this at Sage years ago, was has to, been looking to see are there ways to modulate brain activity and brain circuitry that might benefit patients? One of the paradoxes of depression is that people think of it as slowing. 
But if you've treated patients as I have, and, and, and many psychiatrists have, and you meet people who are depressed, they don't, they're not really slowed. They may have racing thoughts. They may be agitated. You often see them wringing hands. They may not sleep. And in fact, there's good evidence that people with depression actually have hyperactive brain circuitry, not slowed down brain circuitry. So we took an approach early on and when we, uh, several years ago and said, is there a way to modulate brain circuitry to basically restore almost homeostatically normal brain function? Could we actually get the brain back to normal function? Now, the, the goal, of course, is thinking about like a reboot or a reset of brain activity. And that gets into a whole other aspirational vision we've always had about how to treat depression, which would be a sea change in, in therapy. But GABA approach is a way of thinking about slowing down brain circuitry, restoring normal function, and then getting patients back to normal without requiring chronic drug use. And, and that's one of the promises of GABA is, is basically that. And if you, if you step back up, it, it's a very different disease um, ther therapy. But I mentioned earlier electroconvulsive therapy. One of the things that happens after shock therapy, which is still maybe the most effective therapy we have for mania and severe depression, one of the things that happens after ECT is you get a little fuzzy. And what that translates to physiologically is increased GABA activity in the brain. So in effect, what we're trying to replicate is the slowing of brain function, the restoration of normal function without, without sort of such gross measures. And our, we've studied, you know, for us, you know, I don't want to make this about us alone because other people are now following us or other, other investigators doing this. Now, we've studied thousands of patients now across multiple trials. And what we have found so far is that this may be a completely new option for patients. So if you step back and look at how patients are treated today, we have about, before the pandemic, about 17 million new depression diagnoses every year in the United States alone. About twice as many people are on antidepressants for two years or longer at any given time. That's about 30 million patients. So you think about this and you say, is there another way to think about treating depression? Is there a way to get a reset? Is there a way to say, let's get brain circuitry normalized. So let's clean up the kitchen, not only just reset the circuit breaker, but clean up the kitchen. And, and that's really going to be, our, that's been the GABA approach. It's the idea that you can reset brain circuitry. And if you do it in, in a way, the promise and the hope is that you can then go after a short period of treatment without further medical treatment. You may want to go to therapy. You may want to do whatever you want to do, but you won't need chronic medical treatment. And we've, we've published and presented some data that shows that we, can, that we can do this potentially. It's been very interesting, but it's a completely new way to think about depression. And that's why we're so excited about thinking about GABA, because it offers a different treatment model. It's a treatment model that says, instead of going to your doctor, getting on an SSRI, waiting six to eight weeks or months, and then staying on a drug for six months to two years, you go to the doctor, you start a drug for two weeks, and then you stop it. And you treat it like any other medical illness. If it comes back, okay, you retreat it. But if it doesn't, and we found in our studies so far, the majority of patients don't require retreatment after a year. And if you don't, 
then you decide if you want to be in therapy, that's your option. If you want to not be in therapy, that's your option. But now you're offering patients a new way of thinking about it. If you think about other medical problems, I often use the example of cancer. So when I started in the industry, which again, was before probably many of your listeners were born. Before the industry. Oh, no, sorry. Before the industry. <laughs> it wasn't an industry. <laughs> we used to have a discussion. Think about cancer. Back in the day, when we, this is like 30 years ago, there was a concern that if cancer drugs couldn't be profitable because they might become too specific, that yet you couldn't treat all lung cancer, you could only treat some lung cancers. Today, we don't even think about cancer that way. We've gone full reverse. We have individualized therapy. We understand the genotypes of cancer. We've had tremendous you know, re, you know, innovation, CAR-T, immuno-oncology, and patients expect more tailor-made options. And that's what we're delivering to them. And it, you know, it's a tribute to the NIH and the industry that we've done this. You know, and if you think about the vision you know, for mental health, why can't we do that? Well, the first answer is the treatment model hasn't changed for 30 years. There hasn't even been an option for a treatment model change. So the first step to get to where I think we would all want to be, which is everyone has a unique treatment option for, men, for their mental illness, is to offer new options. And so that's why I, I'm so enthused. You know, when I think about like the GABA model, what's exciting about it is a completely different way of thinking about depression. We're thinking about it as a medical disease that you can manage at home and you take care of yourself. And if you, if you get a relapse, you restart the drug. And, and you know in a day or two whether you're getting better versus a month or two. So it's a completely different way of thinking about it. And that's the next step to getting mental health treatment to where we are today in cancer, which is individualized, more personalized, and empowering patients to have different choices. And I think that's really important. Now, let me ask you, is this what Sage is working on now? And, and of course, Sage has a has a number of products. But in this particular program, um, is Sage, is this a pill? Is it an injection? Is what an infusion? What is it? So we have we have one approved product, which is called Zolreso. Um, I, I don't want, you know, I don't want to say much about it. it. You know, it's been approved for postpartum depression. It's an infusion that has to be given in the hospital. Um, we had very good results. The data have been published in, in, in top journals, um, most recently in, in JAMA Psychiatry. Um, so it, and if, so people want to review it on their own, they can. Um, but what was important about this drug is it represented the first foray into looking at the GABA mechanism to treat mood disorders. And like all science, development of drugs is incremental. Every time you do a study, you learn something. Sometimes you like what you learn. Sometimes you don't like what you learn, right? So our next drug, which is the one called Zoranolone, that's been that's been in multiple trials now, um, in more you know almost four thousand patients, and that drug has the same mechanism, but is a unique molecule, and that's a pill that you would take once a day for two weeks, and that and the concept behind this, which we're 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 we've been studying in all these patients, is can we get patients better quickly? And can they stay better? And so far, the data have been supportive of that hypothesis. All of our studies have demonstrated rapid activity in one to three days with an oral pill. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeff Jonas, Chief Innovation Officer and Director of Sage Therapeutics. We'll talk more after a break. 
podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we'll hear from Craig Parker, the CEO of Surison, about their work starting with severe alcoholic hepatitis and potentially other conditions such as MS, osteoporosis, and IBD. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Jeff Jonas, Chief Innovation Officer and Director of Sage Therapeutics. I have never met a patient who doesn't want to know if they're getting better quickly, right? And, and but you think about the treatment model, which is, and again, I, I worked on a lot of SSRIs, and they're fine medicines, but they have a particular onset of action, and that's from weeks to months. And imagine if you know in a few days versus a few months. I mean. It seems to be a no-brainer, no pun intended. So our studies have shown this rapid onset of effect, and that's been very reassuring because we showed it with our first drug, which is intravenous, but then we showed it with a completely different molecule, which is oral. And, you know, the soul of science is replication, is saying the same thing again and again. And sometimes people say, what's your aha moment? And my, my answer is always, you don't want an aha moment. I want a moment where I'm saying, yeah, I'm seeing the same thing again. I'm bored. That's, that's the, I mean, you want to replicate your findings. And so far, we've been very fortunate being able to do that. But again, the, you know, going back up to a, a, the larger question, which is, can we alter the treatment paradigm for psychiatry? That's a big challenge, right? Because what we do today is you take a medicine, you, you wait two weeks or, or wait two months, and then you're in. You, you're on the medicine for two years or two months, you know, months to years. I was reading something from another company, and I won't say what it was, but it was something that really stuck in my brain. And they were saying, patients, you must be on a drug for chronically because patients are, and this is their words, terrified of a relapse. And I thought. If you want to reduce stigma, the first thing you need to acknowledge is that if you work with patients with mental health, they're not terrified. Terrified is an asteroid coming into New York City while you're standing in Times Square. That's terror. You know, patients take control of their lives, they're empowered, and they manage their, 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 they manage their illness. And if they have an option to manage their illness in a completely new way, it's incumbent on us to offer it to them. 
And I think that's really, you know, what we've been about at Sage, which is thinking about this completely differently and really challenging the status quo. And if you just think about that model, it's deeply embedded in all of our beliefs, right? If you're depressed, you're a depressed patient. That becomes who you are. My argument is, no, you're a normal person with depression. You can treat it and you go back to being a person. And, and that is, a, to me, is a major paradigm shift that is, is the next step to really completely getting rid of the notion of stigma of mental health. You're just someone with an illness. You get it treated and you go back to doing what you need to do. Now, you've treated 4,000 patients, and I'm sure are treating many more. Um, and people are now getting used to this phase one, phase two, phase three approval. Where are you in that cycle? So we've completed our phase three program with Zoranolone in, in terms of acute major depressive disorder. And we now have to go to the FDA for what's called a pre-NDA meeting, where they will then discuss what they will or won't want to see in a new drug application. We have some other studies that are underway that that should come out later this year that we are don't believe will be necessary for file. One's in a in an indication comparing our drug directly to SSRIs in the hopes of being able to demonstrate rapid response against the standard of care. Now we think that's a very important benefit. We 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 have such data, but not collected in a study. And then we have another oral study in postpartum depression, because we think that, you know, we're very committed to looking at innovative ways to apply this mechanism. And we, we have an approved drug with this mechanism, which is Zolreso. And, you know, if you want to talk about an area that's severely underserved, you, I can't think of a better example than women's health. Um, so, so we're very, you know, that's another study that's underway. When we started SAGE, there weren't many central nervous system companies. And and no one was, you know, people weren't doing work in neurosteroids, although the narrative changes. And I always explain to people, there are three stages in the development of ideas in industry and academia. The first is, you're wrong. <laughs> the second is, it's trivial. And the third is, oh, that was our idea. <laughs> and today, even with GABA, we have many, there are a lot of people who have embraced GABA and we're, you know, I, I, I give the SAGE team and the scientists a lot of credit for pioneering this and, you know, for an area that people have known about for 20 years, but now doing something about it. And I think, you know, and, and I think, you know, for me, it was a great accomplishment, but again, it's just the beginning of what we hope is, a, is an evolutionary change in how we can treat psychiatric disorders. Well, Jeff, such a pleasure, always a pleasure, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. You know, I'm always happy to come back. Dr. Jeff Jonas is the Chief Innovation Officer of Sage Therapeutics. More information is available at sagetherapeutics.com. Ever hear of the WNT pathway, the WINT pathway? It's throughout the body, and utilizing it may support treatment in a number of conditions, including MS, osteoporosis, irritable bowel disease, and even severe alcoholic hepatitis. Craig Parker is the CEO of Suricin in South San Francisco. Well, Craig, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, speaking with you earlier, I learned some things about the liver and, and my genes and the liver that I didn't know before. So let's start there. I think we all know that the liver filters toxins, but what else does the liver do? Well, it also has what's called a synthetic function or a function of making things. And some of the things it makes that are really critical for body functions are clotting proteins. And so many of the proteins that when you get cut, cause your blood to clot are manufactured in the liver. As you mentioned, the liver also has a critical function filtering out certain things. It filters out certain toxins. Many of the drugs that we all take are metabolized or broken down by the liver. And the liver is also able to regenerate itself. So many people may know that it's one of the few organs that upon injury can regenerate itself. In fact, when we give certain types of liver transplants, the person giving the liver's lobe of their liver, their liver can grow back. And the person receiving that lobe, that lobe can grow. And what we know from actually some of the founders of Surazen is that there's a biological process that's driving that regeneration. And that's referred to as the WINT or WNT pathway. Now, how does that work? What happens? Well, we know in certain situations, like drinking too much alcohol, or if someone has hepatitis C that damages their liver, that some of these WINT proteins are produced and they act on cells in the liver. These specific cells are called hepatocytes, but they're liver cells. They're those cells that provide that critical function of making proteins and metabolizing drugs and filtering out toxins. And these wind proteins act on those cells, and those cells can divide and make more liver cells. And ultimately, if you have more liver cells, you have better liver function. So certain patients who have very damaged livers, they're not able to keep up with breaking down toxins, metabolizing drugs, making those clotting proteins. But if you can give them enough normal liver cells, they can have normal liver function. And we know that the WINT pathway or this WINT biological process is responsible for that regeneration in the liver and in many other organs. Well, let's get specific to our behaviors. Let's say we drink vodka or, or any other hard alcohol, but we'll stick to vodka. What happens in the liver when you drink vodka? Alcohol actually kills those liver cells. Kills them. It's not like, it well, kills it over time, eventually. No, you drink vodka, it kills liver cells. If you drink a lot. So, you know, if you, I don't, couldn't tell you exactly how many drinks, but I'm quite sure that if you had half a bottle of vodka, you <laughs> would kill liver cells and you'd be engaging this normal physiologic process of regeneration or repair. Now, the problem is if you do that every night, your body's not gonna keep up with that damage. And in many other liver diseases like hepatitis C, where you have a virus that's continuously damaging those liver cells, unless you get rid of the virus, unless you stop drinking the alcohol, your body is not gonna be able to keep up for a long time with that, with that liver damage. So you can outdrink your liver. You can absolutely outdrink your liver. Um, and the types of patients that we hope to treat and provide a clinical benefit to are patients who are chronic alcoholics, who typically have a binge episode, 
and they end up in the hospital because, as you said, they've just out outdrank their liver's ability to keep up. And it, it's it's likely because they've had chronic alcoholism that they were teetering on that point already. And that one binge episode, sometimes it's an infection or some other medical complication, pushes them beyond that point where the liver can keep up. Now, how does the liver know in a normal circumstance, in, you know, one 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 vodka, you know, occasionally, <laughs> or any other thing that could happen that, that might damage a liver. Uh, how does the liver know to restore damaged cells or, or create replacement cells? I talked about this Wnt pathway and this being a normal function of the body. It's much more complex than that, though. And we don't understand all of the signals that are involved in the liver regenerating. One of the interesting aspects of the liver regenerating that we don't completely understand is why it doesn't continue to just grow out of control, right? So if you have this sort of accelerator on regeneration and forming new liver cells um, and you're activating it with damage, why doesn't it just keep going? So we'd have really big livers. Why don't you just have really big livers? And many organs have this limiting capacity it's referred to as the rheostat function, rheostat meaning like a thermostat in your house, right? There's a set point, and we don't know what all the signals are that contribute to that set point. We know some of them, and the, the biology is quite complex, but we know there's this sort of limitation function. And so when you have damage, you're activating the Wnt pathway and others. You're getting this regeneration, proliferation of cells, formation of the normal structure of the organ. So we know in, in, in the case uh, of our candidate molecules, for example, when you stimulate this regeneration, the liver looks totally normal. You don't get a bunch of growth in one area or too many of one type of cell. It all looks very normal. And that's probably a very complex process that regulates all of that. But there is this limitation factor or this self-regulating or self-governing aspect to it. So it won't go very far, but how does it know to start? How does it know to do that? To say, oh, we got we have some liver cells we need to repair or liver cells we need to replace. So the damage activates this Wnt gene, um, and it can be active even in an undamaged situation. So in our intestines, for example, um, many people know that you know, if you have some gastrointestinal distress, you know, you ate some food that didn't agree with you, um, one thing that happens is the cells lining your intestines secrete a bunch of fluid. That's why you can have diarrhea is all that fluid coming out and those cells can die, but they get replenished really quickly. And the Wnt pathway actually is what causes that regeneration and replenishment as well. So it's normally active in many places in our body and then it gets activated either more or if it's somewhat um, static, it gets activated in, from the liver, for example, upon injury. So that injury causes the gene to be activated and the gene secretes these proteins that bind to the, in the case of liver, to liver cells. And that starts this whole pathway. It's referred to as the wind pathway because there are many, many genes that ultimately get turned on that have to do with making the cell divide, making the cell differentiate into a very particular type of cell. So it can have that function we talked about. It can have that function of making proteins, 
filtering out toxins, metabolizing drugs. But it's the injury initially in the liver that causes those genes to be produced. So the, this WIT process actually goes on in other areas of the body. Yeah, it does. It's a normal, what we refer to as a normal physiologic process. It's normally happening not all the time in every tissue, but in the intestine, it's happening all the time in all of us. Like All of us create an entirely new lining of our intestine every five or six days. The cells lining our intestine get completely replaced in five or six days. And Wnt, the Wnt pathway is what stimulates that. So it's active all the time in our intestine. So it's all over the place, restoring and repairing. Yes. All triggered by either damage yes. or some something going on to go in and restore those genes. Or, or just a normal, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or it's just how we're able to just replenish that, that tissue or organ like the intestine on just an ongoing basis. Ah, so it keeps us all in, keeps everything in tip-top shape. <laughs> Yes. We yes. need to restore you constantly. Yes. 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 I see it. So in the field, people refer to this as, you know, so we've been talking about tissue repair, um, adult tissue repair, um, and people refer to that maintenance function as tissue homeostasis or maintaining the organ in its state. Can people not have this process or have a whole lot of it or mm -hmm. how does it work? Is it, are there variants here? There are, I mean, like, like many genes and pathways, there can be mutations. And in fact, the role of this pathway in the bone, so it's active in the bone as well. We know that it's critical for bone formation. Um, and there are, are mutations in this pathway uh, that are bone specific that can cause people to have either osteoporosis-like disease, if the pathway is not active enough, or too dense a bone, if the pathway is too active. So there are, there are multiple um, uh, mutations that are known in this pathway. There aren't a lot. It's such a critical pathway that you would be unlikely to be viable um, if you had multiple mutations in this pathway, because it's really, really important during embryonic development. So like many embryonic development related genes, if you get mutations, you just don't develop as an embryo. Now you said that we, while we know about it, we don't know a lot about it. Is this very new, our knowledge of it? Well, we know um, quite a bit about the Wnt pathway itself. Um, the many other contributing growth factors and pathways to the whole organ regenerating we don't understand all of that. But the wind pathway, we understand quite well, and it has a fascinating history. Actually, it'll be 40 years next year that the wind gene was discovered, and it was discovered by Harold Varmus, who later won a Nobel Prize. He actually describes this gene in his Nobel lecture in 1989. And a then postdoctoral fellow in his lab, Rule Nusa, who's a founder of Surizin, um, um, co-discovered the gene, and he's been working on understanding this for 39 years now. So uh, there is a quite um, a complete understanding of what these proteins look like, how they function, the other genes that they activate, which tissues they're relevant in. 
But despite that long, really incredible history, there are still new cells being identified and new tissues being identified where this pathway has relevance. In the lung, for example, there was just a publication in 2018 that for the first time identified cells in the basically the air sacs in the lung that can respond to this pathway and replenish the cells that make the line, these, these little air sacs in the lung. They're called alveoli. So what's Sarasin doing? So what we're trying to do is copy that normal regenerative function, but in a very targeted way and just for damaged tissue. So that process that you know we've been talking about with alcohol injury those patients don't have an active enough wnt pathway or wnt signaling to keep up with the damage so we want to enhance it but we only want to enhance it in the liver an inflammatory bowel disease patient potentially if you could cause that lining of the intestine to be replenished more quickly you could overcome the ongoing damage from the inflammation in the lung, smokers have damage to these air sacs. And again, theoretically, because we haven't studied that yet in an animal model, it's a recent discovery, but, but theoretically, if we could stimulate this regeneration only in the lung, we, we, we only wanna target it in the disease, then we can get that kind of regeneration that's not happening adequately. And it's that targeted part that's a very unique aspect to what Surizen does. So anywhere, the Wnt gene or the Wnt proteins are active to have a restorative or or repair mechanism. Mm -hmm. That's where ultimately you want to go. Yes, and I would say it, 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 exactly. And where they're not, they may be active, but they're not active enough in responding to injury. Right. So we want to enhance their activity in that injured tissue. So what's first step? Well, the first step is, you know, the way I like to describe this is we're standing on the shoulders of the 40 years or 39 years of discovery and understanding of how important this pathway is in different tissues. So I mentioned bone. We also started out in liver and intestine because there was this extensive knowledge of the pathway being important in those tissues. So that's where we, our starting point is, is there good information that this tissue can be restored, that it has regenerative properties, meaning is the wind pathway there? Is it, is it potentially, can it potentially be activated in that tissue? And then we ask ourselves, you know, okay, um, are there important diseases in those tissues where theoretically, if you could make new cells or improve the function of that tissue, it would have a clinical benefit for patients? And we sort of bring together this understanding of the biology, this ability to make molecules, in our case, they're antibodies, that act like Wnt proteins, but only in a specific way for that tissue. And then we try to set up systems where we can um, look whether that has a function. Is it making more cells? If you injure an animal with alcohol, their liver, are we able to create more liver cells in that injured um, rodent and improve their function? And so we have to put all these building blocks together of understanding of the biology, um, ability to identify cells that might be responsive to this pathway, um, model systems we call them where we can 
apply our antibodies, see if they make more cells. And then ultimately we do this in animal models of the disease, which are usually rodent-based models of the disease. And then we're excited to be going into humans next year. Do they have to drink? <laughs> Just asking you how you're, you know, yeah. trying to qualify your subjects here. Well, so we are going, so we'll initially, as with many novel approaches, we have to start in healthy volunteers and make sure that the drug is safe. But then our next step will be to go into these severe alcoholic hepatitis patients. So yes, indeed, we'll be treating them when they're hospitalized um, uh -huh. and have very, very grave outcomes. What about other conditions uh, that you might be looking at? I'm thinking of like inflammatory bowel disease. This is a really, really intriguing question for this disease in particular. The belief about what causes inflammatory bowel disease is that there's an underlying inflammation process that you normally would have to sort of damp down to get an improvement in symptoms. And indeed, the approved drugs are all anti-inflammatory drugs, and they have to be used chronically. You have to be consistently pushing down that inflammation. What we're doing, and we know this works really compellingly in um, animal models of colitis, of, of colon damage, is that a single treatment can completely restore the lining of the intestine. And the animal's inflammation goes down, they gain weight, their function improves, their bowel function improves, um, and all of the cells lining the intestine look the way they're supposed to look if there had never been any damage. And that happens with one treatment with our antibody. And so it really brings up that intriguing potential that you referred to of, you know, can we just give this once or a few times? And after reestablishing that normal intestinal lining of cells, could that be a very durable effect? Now, is it gonna be a one-time treatment forever? I think that's unlikely. But it could could it be every three months or every six months or once a year? I, you know, we think so. I mean, that's what the animal models tell us is that's a potential um, that there's just infrequent or intermittent treatment and not chronic treatment. And since in humans, it's every five days the lining replaces itself. I'm sure that it's a very short time mm -hmm. in the animals that you're looking mm -hmm. at. Mm -hmm. You can tell that the next replacement of uh, of lining is is still good. You're looking at that on repeated replacements, right? Yes, correct. Yes, yes. And there is actually an analogous um, uh, treatment paradigm to this in different diseases. So there's a multiple sclerosis, you know, also a disease of inflammation of the central nervous system. Most of the drugs for multiple sclerosis are taken chronically. Um, there's one, though, that's only taken once every six months. And it has a profound enough effect on the immune system that the, if the clinical benefit lasts quite a long time, for six months. Um, there's also a drug that's used for osteoporosis. It's also an antibody. Those are all, these are both antibody uh, uh, drugs. And it was, it's quite similar to ours, different mechanism, but the antibodies are quite similar to ours. And there's an osteoporosis drug that is also only given every six months. So one injection every six months, um, and, and that's really in, in contrast to 
many of the other drugs in those diseases that are taken daily or weekly um, or frequently. So yes, we're excited about that potential. Of course, we won't, you know, we'll have to study that um, really in humans with the disease and follow them over time to make sure it's durable. But the concept is there, the biology supports that, and our animal models support that. You know, that my, my chief medical officer has a great metaphor about this potential infrequent dosing. So, you know, with inflammation and you're taking these anti-inflammatories, you're always trying to inhibit it. And she says, that's like pushing the boulder up the hill. As soon as you let go, it starts rolling back down the hill. With wind biology, because of this regenerative potential and this whole biological process that you're engaging of repair, her metaphor is, this is more like pushing the boulder off the top of the hill. All you have to do is set it in motion and everything else happens because that's how the body works. The body does have these repair mechanisms. And once you repair it, um, it should be durable. You shouldn't have to keep pushing it back up the hill. I know I know how to repair myself. <laughs> you just <laughs> had to remind it. <laughs> yes, yes. I get it. I get it. Craig, this has really been terrific. I hope you'll come back and, and tell us how it's going, what you've learned. Um, I'd be excited to. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Craig Parker is the CEO of Suricin in South San Francisco. More information is available at suricin.com. That's S-U-R-R-O-Z-E-N.com. Suricin.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.